Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Roll for Enterprise. Uh, in this week's episode, we'd like to talk about robots. So there are all sorts of interesting things happening with automation writ large. So all of the different ways that uh, companies are automating tasks, both in the digital realm and increasingly in the physical realm. As usual, Mike and Zach are here with me, but I think Mike is probably best placed to give an overview of the state of play with robotics and automation. So why don't you lead us off? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're living in a, a COVID world. Um, lots of people are looking at um, how they can better manufacture, better run um, with either less people or more efficient people. And I think there's a bit of a rise in robots that everybody's looking at right now. Um, and part of it is, you know, can we bring back manufacturing? I mean, we're in the US, everybody wants to bring back some uh, some manufacturing. And the only way to do it is, you know, moving from a, a labor arbitrage model to, you know, actually reducing costs through robots and automation. I think one of the interesting things is, you know, when people talk about robots, they're picturing like a physical robot all the time. But I think you were, you know, spot on Dominic saying, yeah, there's uh, there's physical and, and virtual ones. A physical one can be like a, a, an arm, right? The, the Fanuc arms. Uh, or um, they can be very virtual in terms of doing something on a PC uh, faster. And we see vendors jumping into the space uh, with RPA, with some of Microsoft's like Power App tools. I think it's it's developing quite rapidly, and it's all about who can can move quicker. So I think it's an area, whether you call it uh, robots, whether you call it automation, that everybody is kind of uh, trying to put a gas pedal on. And hopefully you guys see the same thing happening. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, everyone is getting into different types of automation. And IT has always been about automation to some extent. Otherwise, what's the point of having the computers around, right? They're fun to play with, but uh, ultimately what we want from them is for them to do our work or at least the boring parts of our work for us. Mainly in my part of the enterprise IT space, we're talking about you know, scripting, task automation, uh, what used to be called runbook automation and is now more commonly known as uh, robotic process automation. So automating the input of data and the exchange of data uh, between the different systems. So the sorts of things that might have involves someone uh, either rekeying data entirely uh, into a system or writing some sort of uh, low-level program might these days be done at a different level of the stack. So where that gets interesting is who is doing that work. If you're thinking of people transforming data by extracting it directly from the database and doing something to it, that's the domain of professional programmers, software engineers. If you think of someone using a workflow tool, these no-code tools that are proliferating now to do some sort of operational task in, say, Salesforce or a CRM and transform data and enter it somewhere else or get a report out of it, another very common use case, those people typically don't have the title of programmer or software engineer. They don't think of themselves in that way. And so that's a, a very interesting transformation that's happening. The automation capabilities are being more widely distributed and democratized. You're, you're absolutely right, because I think one of the things that's happening is the barrier to entry is, uh, is has been completely removed, right? So anybody in any organization can do at least some level of automation uh, in this in this realm. I think it's, you know, what I'm seeing is business transformation is fundamentally 
driving digital transformation. It, it's, you know, you mentioned RPA, typically that's coming in from the business, I guess, outside in. Yeah. And that, and that plays on the whole thinking that, you know, who's best, who, who's in the best seat to figure out where's the best use case. And I think it's the, it's the average user. It's not going to be the, the IT, the technology group or, or whoever you have in your organization. It's the actual doers. You, you bring up like, um, the, the low code, no code movement, um, Dominic, but, and I think you're spot on, right? Because if you think about it, if you give those people the tools, give them a bit of training and as, you know, we start to hire more digital native people. I think it it just it's going to take off, right? And people will become much much more efficient in um, in their work and in what they're doing uh, in terms of of bringing that all forward. I think where the barriers get a little higher is when you need like the physical. If you're talking about manufacturing, you need the physical um, kind of investment to make that happen. Yeah, it's probably good to have some sort of barrier to entry before you allow codes to interact with the physical world, because that will remove a lot of the security concerns. If you air gap your industrial control network from the internet, that will prevent script kiddies logging in and uh, tipping over the shelves in your warehouse or running your motor uh, outside of parameters or whatever bad thing happens. Uh, So that's definitely uh, a consideration. But yeah, I agree with you that the closer you are to the use case, the business use case, the task, the job to be done, the better the result of the automation is probably going to be. And this is how I got started in the IT industry. If you'll indulge me with a story from uh, last century, last millennium, in fact, uh, my first IT job, so I was in high school still. uh, In Italy, high school is a morning only thing. And so in the afternoon, I went around to the local uh, Apple reseller. This before there were Apple stores. So it was a, a third party who just set up a shop and licensed as a reseller. And so I waltzed in the door and said, hey, I know Max, uh, give me a job in that brash 16-year-old way. And to their credit, instead of laughing at me, they gave me some grunt work and sat me down in a corner uh, just to see if I was going to be any use. So what they set me doing was filling the uh, warranty slips uh, for scanners uh, into their Claris FileMaker database. That's a name to conjure with for 90s Mac heads. So I started just typing this stuff in, rekeying it into the effectively a spreadsheet, calling it a databases, uh, kind of a misnomer. And within a couple of days, I was monumentally bored with this. And so I asked, hey, can I take uh, a day and try to turn this into something a little bit easier to key data into. And so I automated a whole bunch of stuff, right? lookups for addresses and postcodes. I just sorted out the tab order, the tab index in which the fields were. And in the tradition, I automated myself out of that job. Uh, it was very soon something that took about five minutes, where before it had taken several hours to do. Uh, but I'd proved myself in the process, and so they gave me a more permanent role and ended up having a whole lot of fun in that uh, in that job, especially as a high school kid. You know, when I think about this and I think about robotics, I think, you know, for example, we spend over $2 billion a year on procedures. And with things like DaVinci and healthcare, you don't need to fear for liability and saying stuff like that. So on the front end, I think where those advancements are coming, we're seeing things, you know, with AI starting to become better diagnostics uh, solutions. Um, we're seeing, you know, better cancer detection, better reading, uh, radiology screens, you know, CT screens, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like on the front end, we're seeing, you know, the medical diagnostics getting reinvented, which is fantastic. But I think now what we're starting to see 
the middle piece of that, right? So, you know, 10 years ago, DaVinci was introduced, which is a robot in healthcare, which does basic, when I say basic surgeries, that's not true. It does all sorts of things like, you know, hernia surgery, heart surgery, things like that. Uh, but now it's moving into really complicated things like soft tissue repairs, you know, things that are really, really difficult. So I think these things have been around, but now they're becoming more and more uh, capable, if you will. And I think a lot of that is driven by the front end by AI. So I feel like they're both merging and the and the merging together is really what's going to you know speed up this innovation. I think when we look at like um, hard uh, robotics, like uh, physical, I, I think data is key, right? And I think when you talk about data and then applying that to like uh, machine learning models and and so on and so forth, I think you start to build a point where the robots get better and better, like what you see in in, in healthcare, as you explained, Zach. I think they're um, part of the. I think part of the issue is that there are cash-rich companies that can make it happen and those who can't. But the other scarier part that, that I see, at least in, in my world, is there are some places that are not collecting data. And I think there you'll see a bit of a divide with the companies that have collected data and the companies who haven't, because it will take time to to have data to apply to these models and to to train, let's say, these uh, these robots that are, are going to come into the market, I think there we'll see a divide, right? And, you know, you, you look at you look at Amazon, right? So nobody is going to doubt that Amazon will one day have nobody in their distribution centers. And anybody can sell a product, anybody can can make a product and sell it online. But I think if you take a look at at Amazon, sure, you could compete with them, but can you get that package to my door in, in two days or, or less? And I think that's where the, the problem comes in is that, you know, how many companies are really thinking ahead and starting to build into uh, whatever they're doing, uh, you know, the data and starting to collect it, even though there's no use for it potentially today? Well, that's that's always been the allure of China for a lot of companies is the massive data that they can accumulate there. So um, what you're saying is spot on, Mike. I completely agree with you. It all comes down to the data so you can have these models and, and where do we get that data? So for a long time, a lot of companies were lured to China because, you know, everything, there's cameras on, you know, stoplights, cameras on the streets. I mean, there's data everywhere. It's just a data rich environment, um, which makes me believe personally they, they have the lead perhaps in, in AI. But um, yeah, you're right. It, data is important. Yeah, data is crucial, but um, as a privacy nut to some extent, I, I do like to think that uh, there is a space to think a little bit more carefully about data, how we gather it, how we use it, how we make it available. Uh, and I think the coronavirus uh, exposure notification system uh, has been a useful debate uh, on that front because in the early days, we we're talking about contact tracing. And that was going to require people to uh, disclose their location data and their contacts, their address books, and exactly who they were talking to, when and where, and how long they were in proximity. And a lot of people quite rightly said, okay, we can see the value of doing this in the case of a global pandemic. But once that data gathering infrastructure is in place, once the information is in a database somewhere, who says it's not going to be used for other reasons? And we're already seeing some of that in uh, in some countries. Uh, and so it was uh, very heartening to me personally to see the Apple and Google approach take off, which is very, very privacy protecting. It doesn't disclose uh, anything at all. It doesn't even disclose the identity of the participants. That's obfuscated by rotating keys that change every, I believe, 15 minutes. And the central database would not be 
capable of being used for very much else for any nefarious purpose. And that made me happier to install the app. The Italian app is now out that uses that. Uh, it's in the process of being activated. Uh, and I'm much happier to install that and run it because A, it's not going to leak data everywhere. And B, it's also protecting my battery by doing that because some of those early exposure notification systems uh, also threatens to absolutely destroy people's batteries by running all these systems all the time. And the Apple Google approach uh, is much more protective of that too, because it's doing a lot less. I think we have a different global approach to this, right? You sitting in Europe, us sitting in the US, I, th th there's a much different approach to, to data. I think we will always have people are worried about like privacy, but I think letting go of some of that privacy gives you some some benefits, right? And it, it's very different. So I, I know in Europe, there's, there's GDPR, and there's also laws uh, that are, I think, uh, being discussed in Europe where they do not want companies to collect data unless there's a use for it. But, you know, the real, the real innovation comes like when you start gathering the data and then building on like, what can we do with the data and building test cases right there. So uh, although I agree, like, you know, on the privacy side of it, I, I think there's, you know, there's something to be said about the speed to to automate, the speed to get robots. If you do have that data and you are, it, it's a bit of a, of a difference. And you could see how China's pulled ahead because they're like, yeah, they just don't care. Where the U.S. is a little more restrictive and, and Europe is is substantially uh, restricted, at least in my my view, my opinion, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a fair concern, and it's a debate that happens in public in Europe. You know, are we giving away the future? Are we ceding the future to other jurisdictions which are less protective? My personal hope is that we can find a middle ground where we do things. Uh, and Apple, despite being a U.S. company, is very much in this mode where a lot of the analysis is done on device. So Apple Photos does facial recognition, but it does it on the local device uh, and it doesn't upload the data to the cloud and do facial recognition there and expose the results of that in the way that, say, Facebook does with photos. So it's a different approach, but you still get the benefit of I'm able to look for photos of my friend Bob. And that's the, the hope that I would have, that we are able to get the best of both worlds, get the analysis but also protect the privacy of the participants. Yeah, I, th I think one thing we all agree on is innovation, you know, it, it demands time. Anything that saves us time can speed up innovation. So I think we all agree on that, but how do we get there? I, I kind of agree with you, Mike. I think we have to decide, you know, what are we willing to let go of? And I struggle with that personally. There are times where I say, you know, uh, I lock down everything and I can't do certain things. I'm getting to the point where I think, well, at this point, you know, how much does it really matter? Yeah, they already have your data. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true, that's true. You know, I, I look at Google and I'm willing to let a lot of things go with Google, right? And I don't know what they've done, but it feels like like their AI, they've they've kind of cranked it up a notch. So like, you know, drafting an email in, in Gmail, I mean, it just knows exactly what I'm gonna what I'm gonna write next, right? And I'm just like hitting tab, hitting tab because it's it's predicting what I'm gonna say. It's taking everybody's data to do that, right? I mean, it's it's really learning from from everybody. I, I have no no issues with that, and sometimes it's it's writing maybe a little more eloquently than I would. But I mean, I, I have no problem in, in in giving that up because it just it, it's it's just so much easier, right? So I, I think it does depend, like, to what level and um, in, in what instances are you willing to to give up that data for the extra uh, benefit. 
There is another aspect to it. So you mentioned Google. So Google's been in the news because they revamped uh, Meet uh, or Hangouts or whatever it's called this week. And as part of that, they inserted it into everybody's uh, Gmail Correct. web UI. And they and for a while, they even went further than that. So they were rewriting people's calendar invites to include a Meet URL, even when there was already a Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever URL in there. And so my concern with AI is very often the black box nature of it. And sometimes there are reasonable uh, justifications that uh, the, the mathematics requires it to be a black box. We don't actually know what's going on. We can't know what's going on inside the black box. But I do like the trend to more open, transparent, uh, explicable AI. So my model for that is if you go to Amazon and you buy stuff from Amazon, it will then recommend, hey, you might also want this and that and the other. And I've tried to cut down my buying from Amazon for a variety of reasons. But in the past, when I was buying heavily from them, the recommendation engine was magic. It would tell me a new book was out by my favorite author before I knew about it from any other source. It would offer to let me pre-book it and uh, have it arrive when it was published. And it was great at that. But what I really liked was I would also occasionally buy stuff for my then girlfriend, now wife, and that would throw off the recommendation engine and would start recommending things that were not my interests or actually based on her interests. But it gave me the option to go into the system and say, no, 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 ignore these purchases. These weren't for me. These were for someone else. Discard them from your recommendation engine and bring it back on the right track. And so AI engines that give that sort of human input, that learning input. Uh, they're sometimes called centaur systems. Uh, so half human, half horse. So half human, half robot systems where the human is guiding the robot through domain knowledge, such as I didn't order that for me, I ordered it for someone else. Uh, or, you know, this car that you designed for me is maybe aerodynamic, but is really ugly. We need to, to change some things, whatever the domain might be is I think the the way of the future. And the Google predictive text is just a little bit too black box for me. I'm not comfortable letting it write my emails for that reason, not because it's a robot, but because it's too black box. It doesn't let me guide it. See, and in, in these cases, these companies do have, I think, escape velocity compared to competitors or people who want to break into the market because they have done all this already, right? So if somebody's starting up and wants... Yeah, Google has your email, Amazon has my purchase history. And it, it gets so hard for anybody else coming into this uh, th this environment. So I think for for the marketing guys like like you guys, I mean, it, it's got to be um, a really hard pull, right? Uh, to, to even catch up or, or try to compete with... Yeah, and I'll tell you, there's another side of this coin we're not really looking at right now, and that's the ethical side. Uh, I think Amazon had a challenge several years ago with their resume scanning AI. There, there's an ethics issue there. So there's a whole other side to all this, too, that's going to be creeping up more and more and more when you talk about ethics. And you look at, you know, I think Meredith Whitaker and, and Kate Crawford, you know, from, well, used to be at Google, right? And some of their concerns, which I think are valid concerns. So I think, I think there's a lot to this, and I think it's going to get, uh, we're going to have to address it sooner and later as we go forward. Oh, quite right. And again, it's important for a decision to be explicable. So if you can see why the CV recommendation engine recommended engineer A over engineer B, and you can see that it's because their CV is similar to past CVs of employees that are Caucasian uh, and went to certain schools, etc., etc., you can, as a human expert in hiring, look at that and corrects for that bias in future decisions, change the weightings in the neural network, et cetera, et cetera.
it's going to be biased because of everything that's happened at a company, right? I, I think there you need to really have some sharp people think about that to, to solve that problem. It's not an easy one to, to solve, I would say. Exactly, Mike. The question is, does the technology industry regulate itself? Or do you look at like an Elon Musk who says, you know what, this is a problem. We're going to do something different, make it a little bit safer. You're exactly right. So the question is, how do we proceed? The smart companies are going to want diversity of thought, right? So I think it's naturally going to happen. Tesla is the perfect example because they have been criticized for maybe moving too fast with their self-driving AI, even the claim that it's self-driving is extremely controversial. And that has led to some accidents and fatalities. And if you ask most people in the IT industry, they are fairly guarded, fairly skeptical about the capabilities of Tesla's and other self-driving systems. It's understood to be a very difficult problem space to address. It's mainly people outside the IT industry who, who buy the hype, who drink the Kool-Aid. They say, oh, well, self-driving cars are either here already or they're just around the corner. And it's, I think, on the IT industry to be a little bit more thoughtful about how we communicate, how we present uh, this sort of thing, if for no other reason, just out of self-interest, because otherwise we risk regulation coming in very heavy-handedly without understanding perhaps uh, some of these subtleties. I'm a Tesla owner. Zach knows. He, he knows uh, my, uh, my appreciation for Tesla. But, you know, as you sit and you use autopilot, you grow more and more comfortable with it. You start to pay less and less attention to it. But I think what Tesla is relying on is that people are sitting there are using a bit of judgment in the settings and the leeway that they give you, right? Like you could set it to, you know, your top speed, you can set it to how many car lengths you, you, you keep. And I think, you know, what we hear about a lot in these accidents, these are people going really fast, keeping one car length. The, the system will not have enough time to react if something does go wrong. Now, granted, it's getting better and better and, and it sees people creeping into lanes and so on and so forth. But I think, you know, again, it comes down to the user, just like in companies, about using some uh, common sense in, in doing some of this. Um, so it's a bit back and forth, but it does make life so much easier. And I think that's what we're all looking for. Oh, agreed. I've I've used these systems, both the Tesla one, I've also used the Volvo one. Uh, my car has a much more rudimentary system, but it, I've used that as well. It's very convenient in traffic to have the radar-guided cruise control. These are very, very good systems. But I think we in the IT industry, again, we use that with our algorithmic brains turned on. Yes. We, we understand what the system is doing, at least at a rough level. As someone who is not maybe thinking about that doesn't have that same feeling. It used to be called mechanical sympathy. You don't, you know, rev the engine too high. You keep an eye on your temperature gauges, that sort of thing. This is kind of the IT electronic software equivalent of mechanical sympathy. We are looking at it, reverse engineering it, trying to figure out how they did it, and then moving on from there, right? That, that's what we, we always do. Whereas I've heard of Tesla owners buying it and being disappointed because the car doesn't drive itself. I'm like, well, you didn't really expect it to drive itself, did you? And, and they actually did. They actually did. Yeah, yeah, there was that famous case where somebody actually made an <clears throat> adult video uh, in the back seat of a Tesla driving along by itself on a highway. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of the, the ultimate level of confidence in the, the car's capabilities. You know, your hands are otherwise engaged, let's say. So we didn't touch on job destruction. Anybody think that all this like rise of the robots and as, as we get to more, um, more and more automation, there's going to be a substantial job destruction? 
I think this is interesting. I, I read something recently about the Global Economic Forum talking about what we need in the future, creativity, originality, you know, initiative, and that the tech giants are already incentivizing this. So uh, that's a good point, Mike. I, I, Dominic, I'd like your thoughts. My thoughts are that the tech companies are already ahead of the curve here, and I do think it's, it's going to change um, and we have to adapt quickly. But Dominic... Yeah, I mean, the old IT joke was always go away or I will replace you with a very small shell script. And I think the types of jobs that could be replaced with a very small shell script, many of them have gone away. Many more of them will go away in the near future, but none of us has a typing pool in the office uh, anymore. All of us book our own travel, all of these sorts of things. So many sort of middle person jobs have gone away and been replaced by a combination of individual user expertise and a whole bunch of automation. So I think that there will be a lot more of that. Uh, but many of these then lead to other types of job creation elsewhere in the value chain. Maybe hubristically, I think white collar jobs are probably fairly safe, at least in the medium term future. Where things might get a little bit dicey is as the warehouses, the Amazon warehouses get more and more automated and the sorts of manual jobs that go with that, which may be not great jobs, but they are jobs that let you put food on the table. When those start going away, uh, that's going to be a very, very interesting situation and how countries address it is going to be, I think, a big differentiator for the next century. I don't think white collar jobs are so safe because of RPA. I, I think RPA will start to dig into them. Now, I, I think if you if you start to look at it from a from a big standpoint, there are going to be new jobs created, right? So I think the skill set of people is going to move up the chain, um, and I think the you know the schools and all that have to prepare for it. And and what we'll see coming to the to the job force will be a, a different type of skill. Uh, ready for the future, um, and exactly what you explained, Dominic. I think what gets scary is, you know, let, let's take let's take truck drivers, right? Since we spoke about Tesla, like we're going to have automated transport at some time. The warehouse jobs, they're going to get automated, right? And I think there's more of a question of, can you retrain those people? And I think that's where you're going to have a, an issue because I don't know that those people are all retrainable uh, to today uh, to, or to the future unless you start today. And I, I think... There's not enough people about thinking of how we retrain today. I think that's going to be a much bigger problem um, than the erosion of, of jobs. Because I think the jobs will be there. They'll just be a little different. I, I agree with you, Mike. I think when I think of white collar jobs, I think of anything that involves math. I think of accountants, uh, you know, Wall Street, stock traders. I think these jobs are, are in jeopardy. I think really the future is going to require what we just talked about, empathy, right? So, you know, who is that uh, nurse or that that doctor that's sitting with the patient, those are things that we're going to want. Creativity, those are the things that are still going to be here. And, you know, when we think about that, even doctors, I mean, I just talked about, you know, the Da Vinci robot and what's going on there. I think their jobs are going to change. You know, do you need to go to school for 8, 10, 12 years to be a doctor? Do we really need that? Or do we need doctors that can have more empathy, you know, for what they're doing? And and this challenges the education system, guys. This is really a big discussion. So we're, we're, how about the Ivy League schools? I mean, that you know, how about all these, you know, mathematicians and, and everything else? So it's, it's going to be interesting. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, the x-ray analysis was a famous one. If you can figure out a way that the robots can analyze the, the, the easy cases, the obvious cases, the ones that aren't worth the time of the very expensive, highly trained human, and free up that human to do more surgical procedures, more patient interviews, more of the creative stuff that can't be automated or can't be automated yet, that's the value of the automation. But a surgical resident is much more able to be retrained and has the skills to fall back on than perhaps a truck driver, not wanting to be elitist, but the truck driver may not have that depth of educational background to let them quickly pivot into uh, an entire different career or major changes in in their environment. So this has been a fascinating discussion. And as you said, Zach, I think it's not one that can be solved by the IT industry alone. Uh, It's one that requires stakeholders uh, from the actual business processes and probably government intervention, especially once we get into the education challenges preparing the next generations. I'm sure we'll return to that as new news happens and we discuss that. I think with that, we should probably wrap and talk to you again next week. Thank you, gentlemen. Let's do it again next week. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.